Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Chapter 86. Actually, this was originally going to be a four-part series. Uh, I'm expanding it by one. There'll be a fifth part of the series. We'll get to that when the time comes. Psalm chapter 86. While you're turning there, let me tell you, uh, it, was a, it was a Monday night. Uh, the year was 1974, December the 2nd. The Miami Dolphins were hosting the Cincinnati Bengals. And Reverend Richard J. Byler of the United Church of Christ was asked to offer the pregame invocation. The prayer went something like this. Creator God, Father of us all, we give you thanks for the joy and excitement occasioned by this game. We pray for the physical well-being of all the gladiators who run the gamut of the gridiron battle tonight. But knowing that the tigers are voracious beasts of prey, we ask you to be especially watchful over our gentle dolphins. Limit, if you will, the obfuscations of Cosell's acidulous tongue, so that he may describe this night truly and grammatically as it is. A great game in a great city, played before your grateful children, on whom we ask peace and shalom. Amen. <laughs> now, we find great humor in that, do we not? The thing is, prayer is not entertainment. In fact, neither is our worship for that matter. But as we enter into part two of this series in the Psalms, we discover that prayer is an integral part of our sincere worship. Now, what's prayer? Most of us know this. It's, it's Christianity 101 stuff. Prayer, the most basic definition is talking to God. It's the communication of the human soul with the very God who created that human soul. And prayer is the primary way for a believer in Jesus Christ to communicate his emotions, his desires to God and to fellowship with God. Now, James 1, 6 says that all prayer must be offered in faith uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it's in John 16, 23. And Romans 8, 26 says that it needs to be offered in the power of the Holy Spirit. Or as J.C. Lambert described it, he said, Christian prayer in its full New Testament meaning is prayer addressed to God as Father in the name of Christ as mediator and through the enabling grace of the indwelling Spirit. So in short, we pray to God through Jesus in the Spirit. And prayer is a privilege that all Christians may enjoy. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In fact, really the big idea behind our study this morning is pretty simple that since we can humbly approach God with confidence, 
He will hear and respond to our prayers. And so our study today is really, <coughs> excuse me, all about helping you improve the quality and depth of your prayer in your personal worship experiences. No, I don't normally wander that far from the, uh, from the lectern, but I have this stash just in case. I got all sorts of alternative plans. Hey, if the iPad doesn't work out, I've got the backup notes. If my throat gets tickly, I've got the water hidden over there. You, you don't know what all sorts of surprises I've got in store for y'all. Um, <clears throat> let me give you some background on this particular passage. So Psalm 86, it's labeled a Davidic prayer. In this case, a heartfelt prayer for the Lord to intervene on David's behalf. Psalm 86 reflects a crisis. Apparently he was praying under duress, a desperation as we see in verse 7. And verse 14 says that arrogant people have attacked him and that a gang of ruthless men intended to kill David. So examining this psalm really helps us to understand the role of prayer in true worship. Now whether that's personal worship or public worship as we worship corporately together as the body of Christ. David actually in this prayer makes 12 uh, distinct requests, 12 petitions of the Lord. And they're grouped into three distinct sections here. And so we're going to think of them sort of as three categories of request. All right. The first petition that David makes is this. Number one, hear me. Look at verse 1. Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Protect my life, for I am faithful. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant's life, because I appeal to you, Lord. For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cries for mercy. I call on you in the day of my distress, for you will answer me. <laughs> Let's be brutally honest, folks. When it comes to matters of worship, Man, we sure do like to bicker and quarrel over things like styles of music or how long the service should be or what color the carpet should be or what kind of floral arrangement we should have. Should we have the American flag in the sanctuary or not? And you know, that's, that sort of stuff, it just reflects a very self-focused and rather than God-focused way of worshiping. But you want to know what the most important matter regarding worship is? I mean, besides the object of our worship, the most important matter is the condition of the heart. See, one form of worship is prayer, and prayer is communication from the heart, which makes it one of the most intimate forms of worship there is. And since it's a matter of the heart, then it makes sense what David said in Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. See, our corporate worship isn't worth a whole lot if we haven't gotten our hearts right in our personal, private worship. 
Man, when it comes to the heart, the most obvious hindrance to a potent prayer life is really the, the presence of unconfessed sin in our hearts. But your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. That's Isaiah 59, 2. Or David stated that God is far from those who try to hide their sin from him. He says in Psalm 66, 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So clearly, prayer is a matter of the heart, a pure heart. Now, I think it's noteworthy that an interesting feature of this psalm, at least the first few verses, is David's pattern. It's a pattern of petition followed by purpose. And we'll talk more about the whole pattern of prayer at the end of the message, but the way it works is that David makes his request, and then he gives the reason for the request. In verses 1 through 7, the, the first section of this psalm, really, it's imploring God to listen, to act on David's behalf. And, and David's reasons for this are twofold. I want you to notice the first one. The first reason is basically David's need and his trust, David's need and trust. This first group of requests are based on David's own situation. The psalmist is needy, he's troubled, but he trusts God. Now, I want you to note here, as David seeks the Lord, you know, how he explains why he's making his request. So verse one, there's the petition. He pleads for the Lord to listen and to answer, but then there's the purpose. The reason he gives, because he's poor and needy. Verse 2, we see the petition for God to protect his life, to save his servant. The purpose, because he was faithful and because he trusted the Lord. Verse 3, the petition for the Lord to be gracious to him. The purpose, because he called on him all day long. Verse 4, the petition for God to bring joy to his servant's life. The purpose because he had turned to the Lord in hope. But then I want you to look at verse 6. Hear my prayer, David says. Listen to my cries. Here we see that David's repeated pe petition for the Lord to, to hear was really born out of a crisis that he found himself in. And he strengthened his petition by saying, listen, Lord. Now that, that Hebrew word for listen is azan. It literally means to take heed, to pay attention to this plea for mercy. The words most often found in some of the poetic texts in the Old Testament, for example, uh, Deuteronomy 30, 20, 32, 21, the Song of Moses, uh, it begins with an exhortation for heaven to lend its ear. Or at Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 15, Jeremiah asks for the people to listen to the prophecy that he's given. In fact, God's people commonly ask the Lord to listen to their prayers and petitions. You see that term used that way a lot in the book of Psalms. For example, Psalm chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. David says, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. I pray to you in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. Now, I want you to look at verse 7 of Psalm 86. 
David actually utters an important truth regarding prayer here in verse 7. He says, I call to you in the day of my distress, for you will answer me. So the petition, he calls on the Lord for help. The purpose, because he knew the Lord would answer. Now, I think what's noteworthy in verse 7 is that, that, that phrase, in the day of my distress, it shows you and I that when things seem to be at their absolute worst, we can still have confidence that God is going to hear our prayers. I mean, when the baby won't stop crying, when the mortgage check bounces, you know, when the, when the doctor gives that diagnosis of cancer, we can still be confident that God hears his children when they cry out to him. And as we examine David's need and his trust, we find that in his own distress, he was convinced that God would hear his prayer. That really brings us to the next reason that, that David would ask God to hear and to act. Not just David's need and trust, but God's nature and trustworthiness. So that second reason is really all about God's character, all about his faithfulness. He says in verse 5, You, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love. But then in verse 7 he says, You will answer me. So why do you think David was so certain that God was going to answer his prayer? Well, here's the thing about David. David had an intimate knowledge of God and of God's will. So David knew who the Lord was. David had had past experience of God's faithfulness. So he knew what the Lord had done. So that means he knew what the Lord could do. See, this shepherd boy turned warrior, turned king, is actually credited for writing half the book of Psalms. I mean, just, just a smidgen shy of half. He wrote 73 out of the 150 Psalms. But you remember from last week in our study, what we established was the purpose of the Psalms? The Psalms exist to help us express ourselves to God honestly and to consider God's character and His ways. Well, David's experiences with God and his knowledge of God's character, they're evident in the Psalms that he, that he wrote. Uh, those two things, David's experience and God's character, they gave David certainty that God was going to move on his behalf. Now, let's turn that thought inward for a sec. What about us, church? Is our faith strong enough that we're convinced that God is going to hear our prayers and answer in ways that we can understand. Because, you know, we, like David, often find ourselves in distressful situations. But rather than feeling like God has abandoned us, we can take comfort in knowing that God is still good, God is still in control, and He is still abounding in faithful love for us as we call on him. So, David asked God to hear because the psalmist is, is troubled. He's, he's needy. He trusts God. And because the Lord is forgiving, good, loving, and he is the one who answers. But then after David prays 
hear me, he prays another way. Number two, he prays, teach me. Look at verse 8. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods, and there are no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name. For you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. I praise you with all my heart, Lord my God, and will honor your name forever. For your faithful love for me is great, and you rescue my life from the depths of Sheol. So what's the biggest difference in a relationship with God that's always focused on our own desires and one that's focused on God's goodness? Let's find out, shall we? You see, what's really different about these verses, verses 8 through 13, is that David's focus shifts from requests about himself to declaring praises about God. For example, verse 8, there's no one like you. There are no works like yours. Verse 10, you perform great wonders. You alone are God. Verse 12, I will praise you with all my heart. We'll honor your name forever. Verse 13, your faithful love for me is great. And verses 8 through 10, uh, 13 rather, really reveal something striking about David. Number one, as we established just a moment ago, he knew many wonderful things about the Lord and expressed those things in his Psalms. But then number two, as verse 11 indicates, David realized that he still had a lot to learn about God and his ways. And rather than content himself on what he already knew, he asked the Lord to teach him. Now, more on that in, in just a bit. But first I want you to know in verses 8 and verse 10 that David expressed God's transcendence. His transcendence. And you're thinking, all right, Eric, is that one of those fancy $10 preacher words? No, it's in the dictionary. Uh, to transcend means to, to exist above and independent from, or to rise above, to surpass. Well, God is the only truly transcendent being. He is above and beyond. I mean, if there were any other being like God, he wouldn't be God. He created all things, and yet he exists above and independent from them. The whole universe exists so that he might receive glory and honor and praise. He is set apart. And in verse 8, David acknowledged this, this uniqueness, this otherness of the Lord. He says, Lord, there is no one like you among the gods, and there are no works like yours. In verse 10, he says, you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. So why then is there no one else like God? Yeah, that's a whole other message for another Sunday morning. But based on what is in the text here in Psalm 86, we know that He alone is the lasting source of compassion, forgiveness, merciful, loving kindness. Now, that couldn't be said about some of the, some of the other gods, Baal, Dagon, Ashtoreth. I mean, how can a bogus, imaginary God really express affection for its worshipers? It can't. 
But you see, more than anything else, the thing that makes God different, the thing that makes him like no other God, he is the God who answers. Verse 7, you will answer me, David says. See, he's not some namby-pamby fake God represented by some figurine that sits on a shelf in your house. He's the king of the universe. And because he's the king of the universe, he is infinite and eternal. And because he's infinite and eternal, his grace and his love are infinite and eternal. And as such, he is the only one worthy to be worshipped. Now look at verse 9. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name. Folks, it was true then. It's true now. Some will bow willingly. Some won't acknowledge God until they're on their knees at the judgment. But all will bow. I mean, it kind of, as I'm, I'm pondering this, it's kind of reminding me of the... Uh, the old Fram oil filter commercials from the early 1970s. Yes, I'm that old, kids. Uh, it's the mechanic who's working in his shop. He's working on somebody's broken down car. And he's warning people to take proper care of their automobile by choosing the right product. And he's saying, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. You see, you can pay homage to God now. Or you can pay homage to him later, but sooner or later, every knee will bow before mighty God and confess that he is the one true God, the sovereign creator of the universe, of all peoples and, and nations. Now, I believe that David's motivation in praying this was not only that all the nations would bow before God and that all the nations would honor his name, but that they would do so willingly out of love for God. Folks, our prayer should be the same. Our motivation should be the same. We should desire that all people come to know and love the God that David described in verse 5 as kind and ready to forgive, the one who was abounding in faithful love to all who call on him. Because he loves all people's all nations, and he desires for them to turn to him. Folks, that's all the more reason for you and I to tell our story. I don't know if you realize it or not, but we have the cure for spiritual cancer. Why would you not want to share the cure for cancer? And so we declare how he saved us. We tell how he changed us. We sing of his excellent greatness so that every person and nation may know. So David expressed God's transcendence in verses 8 and 10. But then he expressed his desire for God to teach him his ways. So we see that David embraced God's truth. David embraced God's truth. Look at verse 11. David makes a commitment to God. Teach me your way, Lord, and I will live by your truth. I think that's one of the admirable things about David. His, uh, his self-emptying really not only made him more teachable, but really led to a very powerful prayer life. 
and an intimate time of personal worship. Author uh, Richard Foster once said, arrogance and a teachable spirit are mutually exclusive. <laughs> In other words, if you think you've already got it all figured out, yeah, that's the very moment your spiritual life has become stagnant. We would do well to imitate David and embrace the truth that the more we learn, the more we understand there is so much more to learn. And in these few verses, we see that as, as the Lord taught David his way, David promised to live by his truth, to conform to his, his, his way, to conform his life to God's way. Now, what's the best way for you and I to conform our lifestyle to God's way? Paul said in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How do we renew our minds? Well, it begins with this book right here. And no, I'm not going to hold it up because I don't want my notes to fall all over the steps. Begins by putting this in here and letting it filter down into here and flow out into our lives. But speaking of renewed minds, David makes a request of God in verse 11. He says, give me an undivided mind to fear your name. In other words, deliver me from being double-minded and two-faced with God. Give me a single steady gaze at you and your name. So the idea was to have a mind that was concentrated on pleasing God alone. God, I want to know your truth. I want to live your truth. Now look at verse 12. David's prayer begins to focus more squarely on God's love and goodness here. I will praise you with all my heart, Lord my God, and will honor your name forever. And then verse 13. Your faithful love for me is great. How great? So great that you rescue my life from the depths of Sheol. Uh, she, Sheol's the Hebrew word for the grave, the, the afterlife, the realm of the dead. And David's mention of Sheol really reveals his apprehension about the very danger threatening him, the danger that prompted him to pray in the first place. And then we see in verse 14, David actually puts a face to that danger, how these godless, arrogant people have attacked me, a gang of ruthless men intends to kill me, he writes. But I want to zero in on something there in verse 13. Some of the wording there. He says, you rescue my life from the depths of Sheol. You see, in the Hebrew, that verb rescue, it's actually in the perfect tense. What does that mean? Perfect tense means it's a past completed action with ongoing consequences and ongoing effects. So in David's mind, it's a done deal. God's faithful love had already been great enough to deliver his life from the grave, and it will continue to be great enough to deliver him. So, in the first part of David's prayer was the cry to hear me. The second part of his prayer, the cry to teach me. Now, finally, we see David's plea to God to help me. Help me. Look at verse 15. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. 
Give your strength to your servant. Save the son of your female servant. Show me a sign of your goodness. My enemies will see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped and comforted me. So in completing his prayer in verses 15 and 16, we see that David extolled God's virtues. Now, he extolled God's virtues in a couple of ways. First, by recognizing that God was compassionate and gracious. And then by praising God because God was rich in faithful love and truth. Now, it's interesting that word truth, it comes from the Hebrew word emeth, and it often means firmness or, or faithfulness. In this particular context, it really speaks more of God's dependability. So even though David could not trust the people around him, he knew that he could always trust God. And so David finishes his prayer by extolling God's virtues, and then David entreated God's victory in verses 16 and 17. In other words, he petitioned God for help in his present crisis. Now, he, he does this in a couple of ways, doing a couple of things. First of all, by expressing complete humility and dependence on God, by referring to himself as your servant and the son of your female servant. Now, in terms of social standing, in that culture, I mean, the status of a servant was low. And the status of the son of a servant was even lower. So these last two verses, David is contrasting God's greatness with his own inferiority. In verse 17, he also pleads for God's victory by acknowledging God as the source of strength and, and the, the one who would shame his enemies. My enemies will see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped and comforted me. So David admitted his helplessness and at the same time acknowledged God's helpfulness. He entreated, he begged, he pleaded for God's help. But, you know, isn't that the way that we should always approach God in our prayer life? humbly? See, when we approach God's throne in humility, instead of making demands like, you know, God's some sort of supernatural Santa Claus that we offer up our daily wish list to, we can, we should really, like David, turn an earnest prayer in a time of distress, distress rather, into a meaningful time of heartfelt worship. We personally benefit from acknowledging our lowly status, for expressing our need for God's strength, and then praising Him for His goodness. And there's a byproduct to that. You see, the byproduct, as we learn to make our declaration of dependence on God, we're drawn in the process into a more intimate relationship with Him. We walk more deeply with Him. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And if we rely on God's grace and God's strength to bring us through, guess what else? We have also set powerful examples of faith in action for unbelievers who are watching us to follow. Church, Psalm 86 has given all believers everywhere in all ages 
a wonderful gift with David's prayer. He's shown us the appropriate way to approach God, humbly, yet confidently. But I want you to note David's pattern. There's something interesting in the way David expresses himself to God. He addresses the person of prayer. He calls him Lord, or God, or Lord my God. After the person of prayer, there's the praise of prayer. You see that most eloquently in verses 8 through 15. Verse 8, there's no one like you. There are no works like yours. Verse 10, for you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. Verse 12, I will praise you with all my heart. will honor your name forever. Verse 13, your faithful love is great. You rescue my life. Verse 15, you're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. So there's the person of prayer. There's the praise of prayer. Then there's the purpose of prayer. We see that in verse 11. Teach me your way, Lord, and I will live by your truth. And we also see the petition of prayer. We see this most profoundly 12 different times in these passages. Listen and answer, Lord. Hear my cries for mercy. Protect and save. Be gracious to me. Bring me joy. Teach me your way. Give me your strength. Show me your goodness. That's the petition. That's the asking part of our prayers. Then there's the pardon. He says in verse 5 that you're kind and ready to forgive. And then we also see the protection of prayer in verse 2. Protect my life. Save your servant who trusts in you. Now, is there anything about that pattern that seems familiar I want you to compare David's pattern of prayer to Jesus' pattern in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke 11, where we find Jesus teaching on this subject. See, Jesus also addressed the person of prayer, our Father who is in heaven. There was the praise of prayer. Hallowed be your name, for yours is the glory. There's the purpose of prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. There's the petition, give us our daily bread. In other words, Lord, please provide our daily needs. There's the pardon, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There's the protection, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Six simple things, the person, the praise, the purpose, the petition, the pardon, the protection. Six things, those, those six Ps, Folks, that, that's the building blocks of a powerful prayer life. Now, Jesus didn't intend for you to, to pray the Lord's Prayer every day, word for word, as some sort of magic formula for unlocking God's power in your life. I mean, that sounds more like something you get from a Tony Robbins motivational tape or something. But he's incorporating the important elements of prayer into the disciples' life elements that we need to emulate in our own prayer lives. So what are some other habits to improve the, the depth and quality of our prayer life? Some very simple things. First, remember, prayer is talking to God, not talking at God, right? And it's not talking to God with, you know, flowery, impressive-sounding King James words with thee and thou and thine. It's just simple conversation. Second, Try this. Read your Bible before you pray. 
discover some wonderful insights in the Word about God to base your prayers on. In fact, a lot of people like to pray the Scriptures back to God. Something to consider. Third, quiet yourself before you pray. I mean, there's too many external or internal distractions to, that can prevent us from really connecting with God. You know, keep your focus solely on Him. Christian, when was the last time you just humbly got on your knees to seek the heart of God and said, Lord, hear me, teach me, help me. In just a few minutes, we're actually going to have a time of extended prayer, give you a chance to do that. But let me give you a few observations, just things that um, I've observed from the text this week. Takeaways, I like to call them life points. Life point number one, though, that we can call on the Lord and expect Him to answer our prayers based on His goodness and His desire to be gracious to us. Now, when I say answer His prayers, that doesn't always mean He answers yes. God's going to answer your prayers one of three ways. He's going to say yes, he's going to say no, or he's going to say wait. But his answers are always based on his goodness and his desire to be gracious to us. Here's the second life point. God's strength is our only hope to survive the trials of life. We see this in David's situation as he's being stalked by men that want to kill him. We saw that uh, last week in Psalm 42 with the sons of Korah, how they desperately longed to be in the house of God, but they were exiled. And there's a third observation, the third life point. Psalm 8611 really serves as a great model for those who want to please God in their lives. Teach me your way, Lord, and I will live by your truth. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.